Hello and welcome to Third Times a Charm, a show that takes an in-depth look at the third film in a movie franchise. This is Season 1, Episode 6, The Godfather, Part 3, from 1990, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uncle Francis, I'm your host, Mike Manzi. Joining me today, a very good friend of mine who has accepted an offer, let's just say he couldn't refuse it. I could not. To be on this episode, the only one who signed up for it. I don't know if he's armed with his Lupra. I don't know if he's got the cannolis. <laughs> Do you have the cannolis? We need uh, we need someone to taste these cannolis. I was just in Little Italy, so. If you don't recognize that voice, you might from P.S. I Love Hoffman. Please welcome back to the show, Brian Rodriguez. I'm so excited to be here. I am not doing the Godfather 3 podcast for the money, by the way. Well, all the money has been donated to the church, <laughs> and, which means that it's probably gone by now. Also, people, by the way, currently when this airs, my next podcast, High School Slumber Party, will have aired, so I'm on that as well, FYI. No need to hold the plugs until the end. I just want to get it out there, you know? I'm a businessman. Well, welcome to the realm of being a single host. Yeah, the whole solo host thing isn't easy. You're talking alone sometimes, and it's it's interesting, but it's certainly an experience. But thank you, thank you so much for having me on this show. This is one of my favorite shows, and I cannot wait to talk about this movie. Shocked that I'm the only one who signed up for this, because it's a freaking Godfather movie. I don't care what people say, but let's dive in. I'm ready to talk. Yeah, good or bad, I think you're right. You know, it's a Godfather movie. Who doesn't want to talk about the Godfather? I had to do this series for season one. This is a seminal series. You know, in my family, growing up Italian-American, this movie, not this movie, but (laughs) The Godfathers part one and two were played a lot, but I'll talk about that in a moment. I like to start off my show asking my guests their history with the series, with The Godfather. Brian, growing up, were you familiar with The Godfather series? How familiar were you? When did you first see them? Please break the swear of Omerta. Break your silence. (laughs) Tell us all your secrets. So The Godfather is interesting because I feel like when you're born, you just know Godfather lines before seeing it. My mother's kind of a film buff, and she'd always said, like, you know, you have to see The Godfather when you go old enough, because obviously it's not like a kid's film, but like, when you, when you get old enough, you have to see The Godfather. I mean, I'd seen like bits and pieces on TV, but I remember, uh, I guess there was like a re-release of all three together on DVD, and we bought it in my family, and I can't remember when the re-release was. What age were you? Middle school or high school. And I watched them all. I remember watching it like, in my grandfather's basement, like I brought it over. I had an uncle, like one of my uncles, who hadn't seen The Godfather either. And it was kind of like an embarrassing thing. I remember my mother used to be like, you haven't seen The Godfather? You know? So DVD, we got it. I watched The Godfather alone. And he's like, oh, you saw it? And I'm like, it was great. And I, I watched The Godfather 1, like, back to back again. And I remember him asking me, like, oh, Al Pacino's the star, right? And I literally told him, I was like, I don't think so. 
after seeing it. Because the Al Pacino I knew at that time was like the gravelly voice Al Pacino, you know? Right, modern Al Pacino. Yeah, and the Al Pacino in the first one's like, eh, you know, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> at, at some point, yes, there is a pre and post Pacino phase where he goes from high and nasally to low and gravelly. Yeah, it's it, I don't know exactly. I think it's somewhere around Scent of a Woman, maybe earlier. <laughs> maybe this is the movie. Hoffman film, Scent of a Woman. It's fascinating about the man. So, and then we're watching, and he's like, he's like, Brian, that's Al Pacino right there. I was like, oh my god. Like, I, I saw this entire film and did not realize that that was Al Pacino. Like, you know. But regardless, so then I watched all three in a row. And obviously Godfather 1, obviously great. Godfather 2, amazing. And Godfather 3, like, so I knew of Godfather 3 because it, it, growing up it was like a punchline. Godfather 3 and Rocky 5. Let me just state this film does not have the best reputation. I think its reputation's better than Rocky 5, although... <laughs> and it should be. So I was nervous yeah, yeah. seeing it because I grew up thinking Rocky 5 and Godfather 3 were at the same level. At least till I saw it. But when you see Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 in a row and you're just introduced to the series... You want to know what happens after, right? So I didn't hate Godfather 3 the first time I saw it. I was like, this isn't as good, but it has its moments. And I, and I still believe that. Like, after watching it again, I still believe it has its moments. And I guess that's my history with the series. It's one of my favorite series. It's movies I've seen all of them so many times. I don't know what it's called, but they do like a... Occasionally they'll run, like, Godfather in chronological order on TV for, like, 12 hours. And I always try to, like... I don't make it through, obviously, but, like, I always try to watch that, too because it's just cool. Like, I see the Godfather TV, any Godfather in TV, even this one, I stop and I watch it. So I guess that's my history. I'm not Italian, you know. I relate to the immigrant story, for sure. The one thing I relate to a lot is... I'll say this is like the New York aspect of it. I live in New York. I was born in New York. My mother grew up in Lower East Side, near Little Italy. There's a lot of scenes that were shot when she, like Godfather 2 was shot when she was like a kid, a couple blocks from her. So like, that's my personal collection of the series, but I'm not Italian like you are. So it's not like that kind of relation, but I'm, I'm a New Yorker. So I feel it that way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And a fan of film, the Godfather series is definitely part of film history. You know, it's on all the lists it's like i feel like since it was made it's been on all the lists just even just being a fan of film you have to sort of see the godfather at least once my history with the film goes way back i guess my dad's side of the family they're all italian american 100 percent his grandfather immigrated from italy in the early 1900s and settled in patterson new jersey wow i just remember growing up my oldest brother was quoting this all the time like this was his favorite movie and it would always be on <laughs> you mean the godfather was his favorite movie or godfather 3 was his favorite movie no so the godfather was his favorite movie he had it on vhs okay. and he must have bought it his, with his own money or taped it off a tv or something but he had the opening monologue like memorized and would play it and quote it i had never sat down and watched the movies because i just was like too young i guess to get into them i was a little kid but somewhere in around high school i sat down and watched them and i loved them they're amazing not just because I was Italian and I was like, oh, but just because I think I was really just into gangster films at the time. Like, I was really into Goodfellas and all that. And I was going back and watching, like, all the gangster films. I remember when my parents went to go see The Godfather 3 in theaters. And they came home sorely disappointed. They did not like it. Like, these are all really long movies. 
Yeah. You know, you need the stamina to sort of get through them at times. Like, they take a long time to tell. Like, it's a sprawling epic, as it should take a long time to tell. Michael Manzi, you mentioned that. Did you know that the studio mandated that it had to be as long as it was? I was not aware of that. There's so much trivia about this movie that I couldn't contain it all. Yes, yes. Godfather 3, to make it, they said they did not want anything less than 2 hours and 45 minutes. They got two hours and 50 minutes. Uh, I do know that this movie, Godfather Part 3, was made under heavy duress. It was being pushed to make a holiday release date. Yes. It was basically just made for the money. It was a, it was a cash-in, which is unfortunate because it, you know that totally affected the, the integrity of it. The studio didn't know what they were handling, and they weren't handling it properly. I didn't see this movie for a long time. I think I sat down and watched it on VHS sometime in my 20s. Like, it took me a while to complete the Godfather saga. It had a bad reputation. It just There's this stigma attached to it. And it kind of just washed over me at the time. It felt long. I wasn't necessarily bored, but I couldn't really feel like I could follow it. But coming back to it now, I watched it twice to record this episode. And I actually like this movie quite a bit. I will be on the side of the fence. I'm not going to like defend it to the end or anything like that. But, you know, I'm going to talk about it as a movie that I enjoy at this point. I, I like it. This is one of of these movies that like I wanted to be on this episode so bad because this is one of the most fascinating movies in film history to me in terms of just the making of and this movie is not a bad movie and it, it didn't get terrible reviews it's just it's in the series of two of the greatest films of all time yeah the godfather part two is heralded as the best sequel ever the one movie that's considered better than the first yeah and the godfather part three is considered one of the worst part threes ever so but it's not it's not it's really not no, it's not, but it's just an example of how easy it is to label things and have them stick and how the public is so easily swayed. They'd be like, oh, of course Godfather 3 is going to suck. It's the third movie, you know? And I just feel like it never was going to get a really fair shake in the first place. But yeah, if you sit down and give it a shot, I think you'd be quite surprised at just how interesting and, and exciting at times and really intriguing this movie can be. Absolutely. I get that it's disappointing to some because, it, of course, it's not on Godfather 2 level but it's not a bad movie like at all there are bad moments there's bad acting and we can definitely get into that but you're gonna see a lot of third films of series that are much worse than this film i guarantee it this might arguably be one of the best films that you'll review on this podcast well we're not dealing with like an amateur here either they got coppola back they got just about everybody back you know pacino is here everybody who's here i feel like they want to be here even what you might read might sound like a cash grab all around like the only one who didn't come back was Robert Duvall because he did want more money but everyone who's here really feels like they're pulling it together and trying to get this done there's just some incidents that led to unfortunate casting that just has to be you just have to deal with it I guess but I find some of that authentic in a way let's just say it doesn't bother me I'm more into this story that I'm very forgiving at this point having seen it now three times for those kinds of flaws so if you think of it compared to the other Godfathers, I get why people don't like it. And I get, yeah, it was rushed, and that sucks. It was really made for the money, and that sucks. Francis didn't want to do it, and that sucks. But if you think of it like, hey, he made this movie in a year? Yeah. Under pressure? Then you're like, wow, this guy's like, he's not, like, a lot of people shit on Francis Ford Coppola in terms of his later work. But like, to me, on the other side of it, he proves he could do it with this film. He proves he could, like, take really, really crappy circumstances 
and make the most out of it. I, I feel like that's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he did with the first Godfather. They didn't want him to hire Brando and, you know, all the producers were breathing down his neck and he's like, I'm going to do it my way. Apocalypse Now amid a nervous breakdown, like he still was able to pull that together. You know, it's just his thing. Yeah. And people, I feel like they forget Rumblefish and Outsiders. Like when his films go right, there's no controversy or attention. It's only when things go wrong. They just, you know, he came onto the scene at such a young age and into the old system and tried to like transform it with Lucas and Spielberg and you know they were the new guard and Scorsese and I think there's a lot of resentment that just maintained throughout his entire career that he could just never please anyone no matter how hard he tried even if he turned in like a great epic he is like the man at you know sticking it out and you know he delivered it on time so you can't say he didn't try no absolutely like again I salute him you know of any yeah, interestingly enough, like the one, I, don't, I mean, I'll just get this out of the way earlier. The, the biggest thing that bothers me about this movie is something that might not stand out as much to other people, but it's actually just Michael Corleone's hair. Like that is the one thing that takes me out of the film sometimes until you know that he's sick and that it might just be falling out or growing back. That kind of struck me as out of period. You're not crazy about that. That is something that in doing my research and even like Kyle Reinfried, my co-host on PS I Love Hoffman, I was with him today and... And he's like, oh, what are you doing with Nancy? I said, Godfather 3. He's like, you have to mention Michael Corleone's hair. It, this is something people discuss. It's so out of period that it's just weird, you know? So I agree with you on that. Yeah, this movie takes place in 1979, and it's just the only thing that really is out of touch with everything else. I could actually, I forgive Mary, you know, Sofia Coppola. She really had to just step in at the 11th hour, and she at least looks the part if she can't really act the part yet. She doesn't really have the chops to be in such a big movie yet, but visually, I think she fits the motif of the look of a Corleone. My unforgiving casting is uh, George Hamilton. <laughs> He's the one guy in here that I'm just like, get him out. We can just give all of his lines to Father Guido Esparducci. So I, I want to talk about both these people. Sofia Coppola is the most shit-on person in this film. I get it to an extent, but it's not her fault. I know a lot of people like were up for the role. And I know Julie Roberts originally was given it and she didn't want it. Winona Ryder dropped out like a day before they were shooting. Winona Ryder had just done two movies back-to-back, Roxy Carmichael and Mermaids. She was feeling exhausted and physically overwhelmed, and she just got sick, and she went to a doctor, and the doctor said, you cannot do this movie, and there was pressure from Johnny Depp to come back to America, and so she got out at the last minute. They needed, like, an immediate replacement. To me, like, Francis has... Because there's, like, there's great DVD extras on, like, the DVDs for this. And Francis Ford Coppola has, like, a great line, like, about this. I think it's on the DVDs, but I know I've heard him say it. He's, like, it's it's kind of funny because Mary pays for Michael's sins in the film. Spoiler alert. And he always felt like Sophia paid for his sins in this film. She didn't really even want to do it. And they actually had auditioned, like, a couple, like, Italian actors there. Because they were in Italy already at this point. Yeah, because like you said, Winona wanted to go back. So they, I think they shot the Italy stuff first. And he's just like, no, you know, Sophia can do it. Sophia can do it. And he's famous for his nepotism. Talia Shars, his sister, right? Yeah, who's great in this. I think she's better. I, th- I like her arc in this series more than Adrian. Oh, okay. 
For sure. For sure, okay? And, I mean, it is topical because we just did Rocky Three, so... But, uh, I don't know if you read this, but, like, apparently, like, at least 50% of her dialogue had to be redubbed. No, I, I mean, I, I was listening to the audio commentary by Coppola, and he was just remarking about what a tough time the crew was giving her because she just had never been on set before, so she wasn't aware of where marks were and where, you know, what, what people had to do for their jobs. So she was constantly sort of in the way places, and it was hard for Francis to kind of control everything because of the schedule was moving so quickly that at times like they were having trouble shooting a lot of her coverage and that makes sense i know like she is I, I you hear it in the film she has a very thick california accent because she's like from california that they had to dub after they did a screening in new york and people hated it and francis made her like redub half the movie and and if you know that you can kind of see that a lot of her lines are delivered from her um what do you call like the shot from the back of her head yeah, the reverse angle. Yeah, yeah, the reverse. A lot of her shots are delivered from re- the reverse. But actually, some of the Michael Corleone shots are delivered from the reverse that, and that are dubbed as well, too. That, to me, is a product of them being so rushed to do it. But it's also interesting how they, they are forced into sort of an editing style that they decided to keep up throughout, even you know, to sort of just to keep up the visual motif. Oh, true, yeah. I actually kind of like that though when other characters are talking and the focus isn't on them it's on the other it's on the person listening or someone else in the room no, no, you get great reaction shots that way, but I don't think it was intentional <laughs> here, you know. Oh, and then, you, so you mentioned George Hamilton, the tan man himself. That, of course, was supposed to be, like, Robert Duvall's character. It was supposed to be a much bigger character. He was supposed to betray Michael. There was lots of ideas. This was one of several scripts. This was rewritten while they were shooting. Addition of Hamilton and the loss of Duvall evolved into this character. Yeah, and, and Francis Ford Coppola says his biggest regret with this film is not convincing Robert Duvall to do it. That's, like, story-wise, the thing that upsets him most about this. I tend to agree a little bit. I think it would have been a better film with Duvall. I don't want to criticize Godfather 2 right now, and that's not part of this podcast, but... And this guy, I don't remember his name, but this guy does a great job. But the biggest issue to me in Godfather 2 is like how that, I don't remember his name, like the guy who essentially replaces Clemenza, you know what I'm talking about? Like that was supposed to be Clemenza. Yes, yes, yes. His brother. Yeah, yeah. In that terrific courtroom scene where the man from Italy just comes and takes a seat and then he sees him over his shoulder and he completely changes his story. We have a sworn affidavit. We have it. Your sworn affidavit that you murdered on the orders of Michael Corleone. Do you deny this confession? And do you realize what will happen as a result of your denial? Look, the FBI guys, they promised me a deal. So I, so I made up a lot of stuff about Michael Corleone, because that's what they wanted. But, but it was all lies. Uh, everything. And I kept saying, uh, uh, Michael Corleone did this, and uh, Michael Corleone did that. So I said, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I feel like they worked that in okay enough where like, oh, I I never met this guy, but it seems like he was in the family. So what bothers me for Godfather 3 is like, is it Eli Wallach? Like, they keep portraying him as the oldest friend of the Corleone family. Don Altobella. 
and I think he does a good job. But, like, as a guy who likes the universe of stuff, how have I not seen or heard of this guy in two freaking Godfather films that take place over, like, 50 years, if you think about it? And he's, like, Connie's godfather, and he's the oldest friend in the family. I hear you. I like Don Altabella, to be quite honest with you. I think he's a great villain. I don't have the issue you do with him being introduced now, but being treated as if he was part of the canon all along. I'm sure he's just been in Sicily most of this time, or... No, supposedly he was there. I know you're a guy who's into the books, right? A book written after this has written him in as... Bruno Tatalia's consigliere. I don't mind so much that he is being sort of wedged into the history of all this. I only read the books written by Puzo, so I only I reread The Godfather and I read The Sicilian, and, and I'll get to what those are all about. But as far as, like, the book is concerned, you know, for the first movie, they only really use, like, half the book. The second movie is, like, almost completely made up, and part of the second movie, like, the flashback stuff, is from the original novel. I'm okay with the idea that these people have been there, we just didn't have time to talk about them. I just feel like they're really good characters, and this guy, they really stick with him throughout. You know what I'm saying? Like, they really try to make him important, and I feel like they do a good job immediately by saying he's Connie's godfather. I'm like, okay, there's a lot of weight behind this guy, and I like him. I'm down with him. Like I said, I think he does a great job. I love the character. I just, I just... I hear your complaint. It's something that happens, I feel, when we get this far in a series to part three, where it's like, I know we'll get to this with Scream, but it's like, oh, I was in the background the whole time, Back to the Future, you know, like Back to the Future 2, how like Marty's running around in the background of the first movie, but we never see him because <laughs> the focus wasn't on him. I feel like that's what happens a lot when we get to part three. It's going to be like, oh, Don Altabella was there the whole time. You just didn't see him because the focus wasn't on him, you know, <laughs> but he was there. He's played by a different actor. He was much younger and he looked a little different and we never talked to him. But I'm sure if you go back to the wedding, we could pretend that someone in there is Don Altabella. I think, too, that in modern trilogies, this stuff doesn't happen because they understand the DVD market. Oh, it's planned. Like, Coppola, I feel like, was fighting against what the studio wanted, and the studio was fighting against the nature of what the story was trying to be. Like, Coppola didn't even want to call it The Godfather. He just wanted to call it The Death of Michael Corleone. Which is ridiculous. That's something we'll all disagree with Coppola on. But what I like about that is it is kind of saying this isn't necessarily a part three. It's just another chapter. It could be like a part five and we could do stuff between it. It's sort of what they're doing, I guess, with like Star Wars stories at this point. I, and I get that and I like that, but there's no way he was going to win that. No, argument, no, he lost that. Know? He lost almost every <laughs> argument. <laughs> because you call your greatest, the greatest trilogy, I mean, the greatest sequel ever, you call it part two. The studio wants the next one to be part three. They don't want, like, Godfather stories, you know? If we're going through cast, though, I have to mention, like, I think Andy Garcia does an amazing job. Not an Italian, but so But you know what's okay with that is I'm not sure that Mary, his mother, is 100% Italian, so that's okay. Even though he's playing Sonny's illegitimate son, you know, he doesn't, he's not, doesn't have to look 100% Italian. I don't feel like Andy Garcia needed to be. I think he's amazing in this movie. I think his presence is just terrifying at times. That, like, he could just pose in a certain way, and it comes across as, like, extremely deadly. It's awesome. Yeah, he's just perfect. It is a little weird, his, like, relationship with Mary, his cousin. Okay, that is tough to get around, incest. (laughs) But according to Coppola, his grandmother 
married her first cousin because it's taboo it's not that like it never happened there's something about whether it be family heritage or history or something like that i mean you see that is most of the conflict between michael and vincent when he finds out is like you can have my kingdom if you give up mary because that is forbidden not cool (laughs) i don't feel like it's portrayed properly but i like that as sort of like the shakespearean angle of the family tragedy I'm not, like, against that. I think it's weird. But like you said, I don't think it's portrayed properly. (laughs) There's something more... You said a good word, Shakespearean. I wish it was even more Shakespearean. I I want Michael to be more angry about this. He's angry, but he's more like, come on, you have to give that up. He's more exhausted. Exhausted, that's a great word for it. He's just not strong enough. He doesn't have the physical will to get upset. And every time he does, he stops himself because he's going to have a stroke if he keeps going. (laughs) He works himself up into these furies and ends up in the hospital. What bothered me, I guess, about the relationship, like, one of the things that bothered me is, okay, so I'll just say this, like, in, like, the backwoods of certain countries, there are a lot of cousin marriages. I can speak to this because, like, I'm Dominican, and I know, like, distant relatives way back when who, like, had cousin marriages. Kay is, like, the whitest, most American character, right, in the Godfather series. The least like that at all. She find like, she clearly finds out about Vincent and Mary, and she doesn't seem like she's affected by it. She's like, oh, she's he's in love with, like, a dark Italian man. I feel like that's a misstep that I don't feel like Kay ever should have found out, that because there's just no time for her to deal with that. She's on such her own journey in this trying to get over not wanting to kill Michael every time she sees him like she just loathes this guy and she should she should oh no rightfully and she's playing it amazingly too from that moment where she's trying to get him to sort of let their son stop practicing law and become a a singer that entire sequence she's like crossed between terrified and like I want to I'm gonna like attack this guy you know it's just it's really interesting the subtleties that she's playing oh yeah Diane Keaton is amazing everyone is really bringing it they're really trying to pull this off the returning people for sure um, and some of the new people. Yeah, Andy Garcia, for sure. His dispute with Joe Montagna, who is incredible. Yes. The part he was born to play. Yeah, Joey Zaza. Joey Zaza is like, that is the character I feel everybody really wanted this whole movie to be like. You know, I feel like they thought he was, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like he feels the most old school godfather. Yeah, he's old school, but he's also bridges to that almost modern, like, Goodfellas, Donnie Brasco, even like Sopranos-type gangster, you know? Who was the, um, you know, the real-life New Jersey John Gotti, you know? Like, kind of almost into that era where he's, like, in front of the paper. Yeah, like you said, the tabloid gangster man. Yeah, he even mentions it, like, that, you know, he's, like, he's almost a celebrity gangster. But that's the gangster we want to see. Look, I love political thrillers. I've gone on the record in saying that. Oh, and we'll get into Immobilari. If you are interested in the Vatican banking system, we've got tons of that going on. There's a lot of intrigue there, and, and we'll get into it. But I feel like people, most people would have wanted more of this story. I think almost half, maybe it's halfway, and I think it's one of the better scenes. It's the, like the San Gennaro feast, and Joey Zaza ends up getting killed. I don't want to say, but it's one of the most iconic scenes from this film. It has a couple iconic scenes. Andy Garcia on the horse is like, Zaza, and he kills him like that. Yeah, and having the people holding the statues 
with the Lupras, just blast them away. And it calls back to the second film when... Don Fanucci gets killed, yeah. Exactly. The whole movie up until that assassination is working as an old-school Godfather movie. Well, maybe not the Immobiliary stuff, we'll get to that, but everything that they set up like <laughs> with Vincent when we go back to his house and those guys try to kill him. Great scene. Like, that's awesome. Like, that's... That's Godfather. That's like Sonny. You know, there's even a picture of Sonny. And when he blows the guy's brains out on the uh, mirror there, he's got like a little picture of Sonny and the shadow as if it's like his dad's shadow cast upon him. I mean, it's really working. It's violent. It's exciting. We even get that amazing scene in um, Atlantic City. Michael is trying to go legitimate and buying into the Immobiliari and the rest of the Dons want to wet their beak a little and they're like, hey, we want part of what you've got so like, give us part of Immobiliari and he's like, now I'm going to buy you all out and there's that giant assassination with the helicopter scene. That stuff's really great too. Like, I don't know what people are complaining about during the first half of this movie. The Atlantic City Massacre there, that's like, you always want in your sequels a scene that goes a little bit further than the last one, you know? And that's the scene in this film, like, just the bloodbath that that is. And it, it, it's honestly great, and it's, like, awesome. You see, like, Ottobello, like, kind of oversell it, and later we find out, you know, he, he knew what he was doing there. He orchestrated it. That's, like, a good scene. What I love about that scene, I mean, Al Neary is one of the returning characters, but he's never, like, a guy who talks a lot. He's the one who really killed Fredo, but... he's He's got a big backstory in the book. He was an ex-cop who got in, like, a lot of trouble for almost killing people, and then my Michael Corleone sort of rescued him from life in jail and made him his right-hand man, and he's been sort of like a repentant bodyguard for him ever since. Oh, that's cool. That That's a cool backstory. Yeah, the books are really... Mario Puzo's got sort of a Stephen King sort of style to him. Like, they're very similar in the way that they just sort of go off and explore backstory and, and then, like, wrap back around to the main plot and everything. So, But in, in that Atlantic City scene, that's, to me, where, where Vincent, Andy Garcia's character, kind of proves that he's not just, like, trying to climb the ladder. Or he's not just, like, a punk kid. Because he's literally putting his body in front of Michael. Yeah. Like, to save him. He's hard to read at first because he's so wild like he bites joey zaza's ear off (laughs) everyone is acting so civilized it's like you know reasonable men talking reasonably and then you have vincent screaming back and forth and michael is like jumping every time he opens his mouth mr joe zaza now owns what used to be the corleone family business in new york (laughs) out of the kindness of his heart he gave you a job in his family contrary to my advice you took the job I offered you something better in the legitimate world. You turned me down. Now, you both come to me with this bad blood. Now, what do you expect me to do? Am I a gangster? No, you're not a gangster. And that was Papa's neighborhood, and now it's a sewer. Zaza runs it like a disgrace. That's what the women tell That's the past, Connie. I earned that territory with my talent. The commission gave it to me, and you approved. Yes. Come on, I came to the party here. I'm not here to ask you for any kind of help. I could just kill this bastard. He's the one who needs the help. So kill him. What does all this have to do with me? Well, he's going on behind your back saying fuck Michael Corleone all the time. That's it. That's one thing it has to do with you, right? Say it to his face one time. Say it to his face one time. Mr. Corleone, all bastards are liars. Shakespeare wrote poems what about it. What am I going to do with this guy? What am I going to do with this guy? If there's some guy running around this city saying fuck Michael Corleone, what do we do with a piece of shit like that? He's a fucking dog. Yes, it's true. 
If anyone would say such a thing, they would not be a friend. They would be a dog. It's a great scene. And then at the end, you know, of course, he's, he's goaded by, you know, being called a bastardo. Bastardo. <laughs> and he gets his yeah. ear bit enough. But I mean, this guy, I'm not sure he's going to last the movie. This guy is wild. He's crazy. I don't know what his intention is. Does he want to take out Michael at some point? But like, yes, by the time we get to Atlantic City, you realize like every part of every one of his intentions are honest. Like the guy isn't a liar. He's telling the truth. He really, you know, he wants to be more part of the family because he has the blood in him. And I feel like it's more than just like he deserves it. He's not doing like a Killmonger thing from Black Panther where he's like, I have the right to be here. It's more like, you know, I genuinely want to help the family and you really see that too when he's back in little italy with mary and like those old ladies come to him and like oh this neighborhood sucks now oh not just old ladies but i don't know if you recognized the little old lady with the gray hair and the black glasses but that is mrs scorsese martin scorsese's mother oh interesting who is probably most famous for her scene in goodfellas as joe pesci's mom I was going to say, because like, I'm like, I've seen this lady before. Like, what the hell is she from? So that makes a lot of sense. That's funny. <laughs> she pops up in a couple Scorsese films, but I think this is the first time she sort of appears in, in someone else's movie. But of course, Coppola and Scorsese, very close friends. And this was shot, you know, in the old neighborhood. This was actually that part where you have like the Genko Olive Oil Company. Same street from the first movie that they used actually in New York City. So you could go do a walking tour of The Godfather if you want to. <laughs> See, I did like in this movie that they returned to New York from Nevada. I like the Vegas stuff. I, I am one of the people who, who like really likes the Nevada stuff. But I think every Godfather story needs an Italy element and a New York element. Godfather 2, the New York element's more in the flashback stuff, obviously. But you need that. So I'm glad they returned him to New York. The Italy stuff was in the flashback in part two as well. Yeah. Two birds with that one stone. Unless you watch it, like you said earlier, I'm not sure what it's called, but it's like parts one and two in chronological order with actually, there's actual like deleted scenes or scenes that aren't on the DVD. Yeah, yeah. I've not seen it in its entirety, and I think it's only available on VHS or pirated off the dark web. Or like, again, you, I recorded it like once on TV. I DVR'd it, you know? And it was long as hell, but like that, that was cool. And there's a lot of like cool little scenes. I don't know if you know the history of that, but like he originally, he did the original release of that. It might have been to fund Apocalypse Now. It might have been to, I know it was to fund. It was without Godfather Three, but it was to fund one of his like big films. He didn't want to do it. And he recut it like that, and he sold it to some TV network. I know for a while he was trying to do his Zoetrope Studios. I don't know if you're aware of that, but he, like, he actually had his own movie studio. And I think it was in San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. Yeah, and I think he ended up making one movie. It's called One from the Heart. I think it's a great movie. I've only watched it once, but I mean, it's it's a technical marvel. But the idea was to shoot sort of a live film, like in one long take, but using multiple cameras. Needless to say, like that company went bankrupt at some point and he had to shutter it, but he would go on to do not only this he went on to do Dracula so maybe for Dracula he needed to try and find some funding and not exactly <laughs> sure when that VHS or when that chronological cut was released I know it was pretty like early on but like AMC has since essentially what AMC does when they do this is they play that 
version, and then they just do Godfather 3 at the end of it, because there's no flashbacks, really, in Godfather 3. There's a flash forward at the end, but no flashback. I guess it leaves room for movies between the final two shots of this film. (laughs) That Joey Zaza assassination during the festival, which is great. Like the helicopter sequence, this sequence, it's just really great examples of filmmaking language. Like the way things are cut and the shots that they cut to. I think there's only maybe one shot of the actual helicopter in the AC massacre and the rest of it is mostly like trickery, you know, like quick cutting and people getting lit up with bullet holes and like you see almost from like the killer's perspective what's going on yeah yeah and the sound there is amazing yeah and then during the zaza assassination it keeps cutting to the uh, the horse's feet like the horse trotting across the screen every couple shots and then it'll have like uh, after the shots ring out like you'll show joey running and then like cut to the horse and back and forth like it's just really interesting visual uh, storytelling during these sequences it just goes to show i think that coppola just has that in his blood like you know what i'm saying like in the midst of all this pressure and all this craziness like what he's actually structuring as a sequence is really good and really tight yeah yeah for sure He's a great director. He deserves to be in that class, no matter what his missteps are. And this film should not be considered a misstep. I think people just get frustrated because, like you said, especially after this sequence, when they go to Sicily, most of the action is done. It's a lot of conversation from here on out. It's the We're playing out the love story, Michael trying to get Kay back. We get a little bit of the, um, the Donatabella is hiring the assassin, like that comes, but that is mostly played out at the opera. So there's like a huge chunk of this movie, of like an hour and a half, that resorts sort of back to just like a straight drama. Yeah, I mean, First Godfather, it's like a lesson in screenwriting and filmmaking. It's just, it's telling a lot of different stories, but there's no real lull in that Godfather, in the first Godfather, you know? You might want to count Sicily there. I don't think it's a lull because his wife ends up getting blown up, you know? Right, exactly. And then the second Godfather, if it was just the Michael stuff, like Michael hanging out in Cuba and like on trial, then you might consider it kind of like a convoluted movie like this. But the fact that it's spliced in, like, with the flashbacks and stuff, it works great. This doesn't really have that. It's like a different structure where... And, and again, we'll get into it whenever whenever you feel like deep diving into the Vatican stuff. Let's start opening that door. The thousand-upon-thousand-year-old door of Vatican intrigue. Exactly. How do you feel about it? Religion has always been, and the church especially, has always been part of the Godfather... I mean, even if you think, what are the ti- what's the title of this series in the film? The Godfather. It's a very important Italian, or like, not just Italian, but an important Catholic religious position in somebody's family to be somebody's godfather. You know, it's there. It's, like you say, it's right in the name of the story. But this is the first time that it's what the story's been about, that we're going to actually get into the church, like that the church is going to become a character. And now what? I, the first time it kind of, I didn't understand it, I'll be honest with you. This was, you know, back like, you know, years, like almost 20 years ago or whatever, the first time I watched it. Watching it for this, I found it very intriguing just because of all the scandal that I am now aware of going on with church, with the priest and whatever, what have you in the last, you know, 30 years or whatever. I'm now aware of the institution and, you know, the dark side. 
So I found this very interesting and intriguing this time around, and I was all for this church conspiracy going on based on actual events that Coppola is actually talking about, actual Italian history here during this time, and has sort of woven The Godfather into like real history, like like actual world events. And I thought that was actually kind of interesting. And like the main getaway I got from it was that Michael Corleone is trying to go legit by investing in the church to sort of clear his name. And the church is like the most illegitimate institution he could have trusted in, that they are going to do everything to take his money and push him away and ultimately try and take him out, uh, get him out of the picture. I found that very interesting. This is like it's very it's very cool stuff. It, and like you said this is all it's all based on a true church scandal, not necessarily like with the mafia, but well, with the Illuminati. <laughs> I mean that yeah, that that's a theory, but like there was the bare bones of it is that there was a huge church banking scandal. Yes. Ironically, I don't know if you read this trivia fact, but at one point the Vatican Bank had majority stake in Paramount Pictures, which produced this film, so it's kind of funny. That's pretty funny. But yeah, no, this it's a real scandal. Michael's trying to get legit. I love that aspect of it. I love because it's a true this is what makes this a true American story. So many families in America started out with crime and then made this legitimate. I think of the Kennedys, you know, like like Joe Kennedy is a bootlegger and his son becomes president, you know? Dude, I I'm thinking more recent like Jay Z, you know, like started out dealing crack and stuff and then, you know, look at him now, Mr. Beyonce. So Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> But this is something that happens. I feel like this is the goal of most, at least, like, business-minded, we'll call them gangsters, if you will, you know? You want, to, not maybe not the jo Joey Zaza types, even though he says, oh, I want to be legitimate, but definitely, like, the Michael types. Like, it's like, it's, I'm going to do bad so my children, I can be one of the great American families because, for my children, you know? And he gets there almost, you know? <laughs> he's so close to it before he's completely broken with, the cardinal and stuff and it's like he's trying to secure his children's future by controlling the world like he gets so close to essentially like ruling part of the world like you know this this idea this whole plot with the immobiliary the immobiliary is a company which is basically like a giant landlord like it is the largest real estate company in the world and the church the vatican owns 25% of the stock, so they have like a majority say, I guess, in, in what goes on with this business. And Michael Corleone basically buys that percentage, or that is what his dealings with the church are about in this film, is he wants to buy the controlling interest in the immobiliary business. He will then control the most legitimate business in the world, and basically the biggest company on earth. Yeah, I mean, that that's like the gist of it and like we said like he he essentially gets there he actually once they switch popes if you want to get into that yeah he has it for about a day right like <laughs> but i just think about the power involved with that afterwards it's like if you think about how much power the vatican must have in the say of that company and now that power is going to be his one man like that is some 
top of the heap type shit. You know what I'm saying? Like he'll be one of the most powerful men on the planet and he will have come from, like you said, this world of crime. If you think of the earlier movies and his father wanted him to be like a senator and like a, like, or like a, a top lawyer and stuff like that, he's almost like fulfilling his father's legacy both ways for like taking care of the family, getting out of that and becoming just like a legitimate powerhouse. And I like that chase. You know? Yeah, he's a crazy person. Like, he's a true sociopath in the sense that he doesn't realize what he does all the time. Like, the way that he lies to himself, especially regarding his own children, especially Mary, whom comes to him and is like, am I just a front? And he's like, of course you're not. And I truly believe he thinks that. But deep down, that's a lie. She is most definitely a front for one of his organizations, you know? And it's like, (laughs) he was only going to have his son become a lawyer so that he could work for him and pull strings, you know? Like, he says he cares about his children, but ultimately he cares about himself the most. Yeah, and honestly, like, if I'm going to have a criticism of this film, maybe that's something that... I mean, it's something Al Pacino said, that he he didn't necessarily agree with the portrayal of of Michael in this film because he thought he wasn't sociopathic enough. I'm, like, paraphrasing, you know? But he, he, he thought he wasn't, like cutthroat enough like he was too suddenly like forgiving and like he he was too human being in this one and i i I don't necessarily agree with that a hundred percent but i think it's a fair criticism but many years have passed we don't know what personal journey that like he's gone through to like get back to this level because michael used to be like that and like godfather one he used to be like, like he wasn't always crazy like that you know he was more impulsive, I feel, as a character in the past. I feel like he had to be more cunning at times. This just feels like he says early on he wants to be out. And there's the famous line. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Oh, I love it. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. It feels like a lot of the attention is put towards the struggle of trying not to become my past self like I put my past away but it just keeps coming back to haunt me and there's nothing I can do but embrace that at the end because ultimately that's my nature that's who I am so in this movie it's almost he's running from who he is from his nature and that's why you get those moments when he starts yelling and then he stops you know because he doesn't want to get too upset because he doesn't want to let himself rise to the surface again and i really feel like the one time we see how dead serious he is we get his famous icy cold stare is when he tells vincent at the end he's like if you want to be the don you have to cut all ties with my daughter yeah and i think what makes that scene so powerful too is the the confession he gives earlier to the cardinal who becomes pope yeah he confesses to killing fredo Yeah, and even more important, I think, there is, like, what that cardinal says to him. It's something along the lines of, like, you know you've done so much wrong, like, you kind of deserve to suffer, and because of it, you're not really going to change. And that ultimately is what happens to him, right, is that he isn't killed, but everything he loves most is taken away from him. Like, he loses his daughter, he loses the rest of his family from that point on, and I just assumed he became reclusive and moved into Dom Tomasino's residence now that it's vacant. You know, it's almost like a fate worse than death to a degree that he has to live with all of this after he's caused, like, such terrible, terrible things. Yeah, and Francis Ford Coppola said that, like, he wanted Michael to pay for the sins of the previous film. Did you like this ending? The makeup's pretty crappy, to be honest with you. Oh, like, the very, very ending? Yeah, 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 like, did you like that? I don't know that it was necessary. I don't mind it. It's just, like, a weird little coda. I actually quite like the end if it just 
ended on the steps of the opera house. I think that is just a little more operatic. We're at a point in the movie, it's like such a crescendo that then we have like this little tag on the end. And, you know, I don't mind the makeup. I don't really mind it, but I just don't find it all that necessary. I tend to agree with that. Like, I think I, I would have liked to see more of the reaction shots of the other character. And I would have rather liked to leave with that thing that you were just mentioning. Like, because of his lifestyle, he's probably ruined the, the chance he had at family. Rather than us seeing him fall off in a chair. Like, I get it. We're not stupid enough to think that he's ever going to come back from his daughter being, like, killed, essentially, because of him. Like, in that kind of dramatic fashion. I think we could just leave it there and that we would have been okay. Yeah, there's, there's a really nice shot of him early in the film that signifies just how alone he is as a person. And it's after he allows his son to become an artist and Kay leaves the room and he's sitting in a chair in the dark, basically like all in shadow. And he's all alone. He's got no one near him and he's a man that sits in a dark room, you know, like he's just by himself. And I think it's fitting that he dies alone too, you know, like when he dies surrounded by two little dogs holding an orange and just kind of keels over and you just get the sense that he faded away and that is pretty tragic. Yeah, and I think it's something that's interesting that I, this is the first time on this watch, the first time I've ever thought about this. In The Godfather, women play like play an important role in terms of just almost sexual desire. And of course it does with Vincent and Mary. But you don't see Michael, like, ever... I mean, he had the thing with Apollonia. But you never see him ever, like, cheat on Kay or, like, surround himself with hookers or something or, like, just cheap women. He could. He's, like, rich as hell. Kay's moved on. Kay's married. But he hasn't taken on anyone else. And I, I truly believe that he probably hasn't been with anyone besides Kay since Kay. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know that he was with many people before her either. I think he's still holding that candle for her because I feel like, again, he's lying to himself. He really feels like he could win her back. Like, he really... Which is crazy. <laughs> he's like a stalker at one point where he, like, whisks her away for an afternoon in Sicily and gives her the grand tour. She is not down with that. And at the end, she's, like, crying and has to say, like, you know, I'll always love you. It's some part of me. It's not just what he wants to hear, but it pains her to say something, you know, to have to admit that to him. To say, like, you win, like, that little much. And then he goes and he's like, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I swear to God. And then right after that, he finds out Don Tomasino has been shot to death on the street. And he's like, like Don Corleone, I need your blessing to go get my revenge. And he's like, absolutely. <laughs> and Kay's like, nothing ever changes. She makes that, yeah, she makes that good comment about Al Neary. She's like, oh, I still see Al's around. And he's like, oh, I need someone to take me out of the car and stuff. But, like, she's not stupid, you know. She she was naive at times. But I think that, what, that iconic scene in Godfather 2, like, where she tells him that she aborted the baby and stuff, and he's just like a monster. To me, that, that was always Kay's scene of, like, coming to consciousness a bit. That is the moment of that is Michael revealing his true self. You know, that is all the not being able to contain himself is like, I feel like one of his greatest fears. And that's like a whole thing with the Corleones and the Sicilians is just to be reasonable and to not lose your temper and to act accordingly. And, you know, you could try and reason things out first. And in that moment, he definitely didn't. I don't feel like he ever truly does with his family. It's always sort of his word against theirs. Yeah, for sure. One thing I want to mention before we jump into anything else, though, before I forget, I'm I'm a screenplay guy. I like to like really pay attention to the lines. 
there were some lines in this one that, especially from Mary, I guess, that, that felt a little forced. One of them I wrote down was like, she literally says to him like, oh, I hope this will get me closer to you, like in terms of running the foundation. Like that to me, like that's not a line that needed to be said so much. Like I think we get that. It was weird to me that there are a couple lines in here that were more like better seen than said, but were said anyway. I think that completely comes from the rushed nature of the screenplay and the directing. Yeah, and I have a feeling a lot of the ADR may have also been an opportunity used to rewrite this movie a final time in post-production. Oh, that's a good that's a good point. Yeah. One thing we didn't talk about the final 30 minutes of this movie is at the opera and I really like this sequence. I think it's a bit long, but I like the idea of the assassin being sent and the idea that he's like a super old dude and that Don Altobella like recognized his son that used to be like a small bambino and is now grown up and does like the donkey thing. I really like that. I wish there was a little more of that because I really like when we see the assassin open up his dresser and he's got his guns and all of his costumes and you know that this guy is like, this is what he does and like, this is how he's always lived as an assassin and he's a really old dude so you know he's really good at his job and I like how he infiltrates the opera house as a priest and the way that he kills the twins and he tricks the one twin pretending to have been stabbed and then like kind of comes to life and kills him like there's a lot of nice stuff going on in this sequence yeah yeah it's interesting to me this is so coppola you know i think he's felt like the godfather was operatic and it's like he almost needs to end his series at the opera and i agree with you with that like assassin especially because it's in sicily they always talk about, like, it has such an old culture, and it's just a culture of, like, the mafia there has always been a thing. And, like, this is a guy, I bet his father was an assassin, you know, and I bet his father was an assassin. Right. Not that it's a respectable job, but it's almost, like, more of a realistic job there. Absolutely, which I found out in the book The Sicilian, which I'll get to in a little while. What it reminds me of is, again, from the first movie where we have the cross-cutting between the murders and... The baptism, here we have the cross-cutting between the murders and the opera. It's not quite as well done, perhaps, but it's the same idea. He's sort of calling back that cross-cutting editing style that he loves to do. And not only him, but his, his good pal George Lucas loves doing that, too, a lot. If you, if you watch those Star Wars films, in the third act, there'll be like a battle, and then there'll be like another sequence. There'll be just like a cross-cutting kind of thing going on. So, You know what I liked about it? So, Godfather 1 ends with obviously taking care of the family business, that that scene where it's similar to this, where he sends the assassins out and they kill everyone who needs to be killed. Yeah. Godfather 2 has that s similar thing. And overall, both those things end in a success. He takes out everyone he needs to take out, and he's on top of the world again. And because of this assassin in Godfather 3, it's like Michael can't do that again and again and again and wipe the slate clean. Instead of wiping the slate clean here, there's blood on his hands forever because his daughter ends up dying. So I do like that motif, the fact that, like, you can't just do that every time. You can't just, and then, like, start over. And, and it's cool, though, like, Vincent more orders that stuff than Michael. Like, it's kind of like a combo thing. But it's still, like, not, like, it's like, so, sorry, not gonna fly every time. Eventually you have to pay for your sins. Yes, that's what I, I liked about it, though, also, is that it's like a reversal. First of all, it's not Michael ordering it, and it's like in the first movie, Don Corleone has given up his position and has turned it over to Michael. Uh, and in this one, Michael has given up his position and turned it over to Vincent. So we have that. And then the order 
is given by Vincent, but it, it's not, it doesn't seem as calculated or as planned as like Michael would have maybe, or as thought out. It feels a little more impulsive or maybe a little more emotionally driven. And I love that it doesn't work out sooner or later you're going to crap out and like the dice don't always roll for you. I think a major part of it too is that they're in Sicily and that is just a whole other wild card that they thought they were safe but it's actually probably the most dangerous place they could have gone with their reputation. They maybe felt a little too secured. There's a lot going on at that point because they're all together as the family. They all seem like they feel like they're safe and they're at their least safest moment. Yeah, like the twins there are no match for this assassin. I feel like all Vincent's guys are, like, play by, like, very, like, the American rules of stuff. Obviously, they're gangsters. They play dirty, but, like, not dirty enough for Sicily. While they get, like, most of the guys they need to get, at the end of the day, they fail big time. And while Michael doesn't die, it's almost worse. It would have been better if Michael died on those steps. Definitely, Michael would have traded his own life for his daughters right there. Yeah, and I love the way that that's depicted where the sound drops out and you just see him wailing and everyone in shock looking at him and then it cuts back in and you get like that great Pacino growl. <laughs> during the confession and during that part, like I got really emotional. Like the movie really grabbed me again and shook me and was like, there's a real heavy core to this thing. And I, I feel like it's rewarding. If you're looking for it, it's there. This isn't a casual watch. I think that's the major thing. It's like you have to be paying close attention all the time. It's very long and it benefits from multiple viewings. So why do you think, though, that it's not in the class of Godfather 1 and Godfather 2? I think ultimately it came too late. Now it's hard to imagine because of the culture we live in with franchise, you know, which led to this show ultimately because of how fucking many there are. <laughs> I've clocked in about 300 movies on my list of part threes alone. So, you know, there's, you know, there's so many more that just made it to part two. I feel like at the time the culture wasn't prepared. They didn't know what to do with The Godfather Part 3. Even if you look at Back to the Future, 2 and 3 came out back to back. So they knew. They were like, we got to get this shit out before people forget about us again. It's been long enough already. Ghostbusters 2, they waited too long. And, you know, that was the 90s. And you wait like two, three years and people forgot about you. Or they was just like moving on, moving on. But I, I truly believe like at the time people were just like, there's no need for a Part 3. Like no one's asking for this like i don't feel like people knew they wanted it until they were told like it's coming there just didn't seem to be a market one and two were so solid the story felt like it could have been over i don't know exactly who decided like it's time to do part three but i have a feeling it's something like we've been trying to do this ever since the ever since we finished part two and it's just taken forever yeah i mean godfather Two is like two and three together because of the way it's structured, you know? Yeah. You get your pre your prequel and your sequel, yep. almost. I think you're right. I think the time did not help. I think it's something we didn't need. But I think if he was given the amount of time to, like, work on a script and do something, and he had the budget for the actors that he actually wanted... I think just showing of what he did in the crunch time, I think he definitely could have made a film that was on par with these other two films. I'm not saying anything's going to be Godfather 1 and Godfather 2, but I think, like, this movie could have been definitely better if it wasn't so rushed, for sure. And I think Robert Duvall's character, I think that's something that's missing from that last act. Because, again, he was supposed to somehow double-cross Michael. His son is there. His character's son. Yes, because he's just like a friendly priest guy, you know. <laughs> but I think that double-cross 
maybe he would have like been in league with Otobello. Yeah, to get the deal done or something, or not get the deal done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like I think that would have. I would have felt it more. As good as Otobello is, I didn't feel his double cross so as much as I would have felt it from Tom Hagen, a guy who was like literally Michael's brother. Yeah, I, I think that's another thing missing from this a lot is like there's just not a lot of treacherous twists and turns. Like after Joey Zaza's death, the movie just isn't as exciting. You know, it just becomes a different type of movie until the end again. I really like the part with Connie and Altabella. Like, I really feel like that is earned. I, I really like that character, so I love the death by Cannoli. Yeah, but to, to, to me, he seems more... He's a great bad guy, but to me, he seems more like... He should have been, like, the secondary bad guy, too. And I imagine that, like... To me, it fits in perfectly with Hagen, you know? And they weren't going to, like, randomly put in, like, George Hamilton's character <laughs> to do that. Less of him, the better. <laughs> He's actually there at the end, but he stops talking about halfway through the movie, which I appreciated. <laughs> it's true, he does. Part of me thinks like, oh, after seeing this, I'm surprised people didn't say, oh, I wish they gave him more time and like let him do what he wanted because look what he was able to accomplish with what he was given, you know? Like, he really tried to salvage this production. like, And that's how it feels at times. Other times, there's, like, strokes of genius in here going on. It's, like, really amazing. And if it was just under better conditions, it would have been that masterpiece, you know? It probably would have been in the ranks of the first two movies. And then the other part of me keeps thinking, well, people didn't see that because they didn't ask for part four. You know, they didn't say to Coppola, like, wow, here's more time and money because of what you were able to pull off with part three under those restrictions. Here are no restrictions. Go do a part four. You know what I mean? Like, this just got panned and put away and ultimately, for the most part, forgotten about. Which is annoying, but I think it is now. Maybe not now, but like hopefully in like a couple of years it gets its due. I hope like young people who haven't seen Godfather films watch them all and they don't hate this because they don't know that stigma that we knew growing up. Like when our parents saw it and were like, this is crap, you know? <laughs> right. Because of the anticipation. You mentioned Godfather, but four, in quotes, or whatever. Have you heard about the script for that one? Because I know they had a finished script. That's the rumor. I have, like, a Godfather companion book that runs through a bunch of part three alternate ideas and stuff. But at the, during the closing credits of the commentary, Coppola actually does reveal what his plans would have been for part four until Mario Puzo passed away. And then he ultimately, he was like, well, if Mario's... I think that's what ultimately killed it, was that when Mario died, since he couldn't be involved, they didn't want to do it without him. What he was saying was that it was going to be more along the structure of part two. Half the movie was going to be Vincent, now Corleone, but Vincent Mancini Corleone back in New York City trying to restructure the family business and it was going to be more about the 80s and cocaine and that drug culture and it was then going to cut back in time to young Sonny Corleone growing up on the mean streets of New York City and first meeting Tom Hagen and getting into trouble and you know the recast Vito Corleone again maybe De Niro could have come back in some makeup and reprised that role as a young Vito Corleone that was an idea that the two of them were floating around and Mario passed away and everything got shelved after that no one has seen it but apparently there's like like a completed script for that one. Because apparently DiCaprio is committed as as Sonny. We're in the culture now where Godfather 4 is exactly what people would go see. Yeah. Not everybody might want it, but a studio would be like, oh yeah, The Godfather's been sitting on the shelf for almost 30 years or whatever. Like, someone make a Godfather movie. Make two of them. Leo wants to do it? How about a whole new trilogy? That seems to be the pattern these days. <laughs> 
Side note, you mentioned De Niro. Did you read that fact that he originally wanted to play Andy Garcia's character? Yeah, yeah, he thought he could play his own grandson, which would have been interesting. <laughs> and then, uh, I don't know if you read this, but Sinatra wanted to play Don Altobella. Oh, really? That's funny. He read the script, and it was more than he had expected. I think he thought it, he, he might have read the first half of the script and been like, okay, I could go to New York, I could do this. And then he read the second half, he's like, I'm not getting on a plane to Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> you come to Frank. Frank doesn't come to you. Wow. And speaking of Frank Sinatra, we get Johnny Fontaine back in this film. We get some like cool uh, people back from the original films, which I which I like. And that's the same actor portraying Johnny Fontaine as well. Yeah. Which is okay. So he is. I don't know. A quarter of Godfather, the novel. Johnny Fontaine's godfather is Vito Corleone. So there's one scene in the first movie where he comes to him and he's talking about this movie producer doesn't want to hire me. And he's like, you could act like a man. And he slaps him and he's like, you go back, you take some time. But when you come back, you'll have that picture. And then Tom Hagen visits the producer. And ultimately that guy wakes up with the horse head in his bed. And that's how Johnny Fontaine gets the part and becomes like a big star again. In the book, like it keeps going. Like Johnny Fontaine is a big singer. He's a movie star. He loses his voice he meets a doctor he has surgery he becomes a star again like he puts out albums he brings his friend from the old neighborhood out they become big movie stars don corleone starts investing in hollywood pictures they become big producers they make a lot of money he becomes like a legend out there it's pretty insane Johnny Fontaine could be the Godfather 1.5. You could put a whole movie between part one and two that is just about the adventures of Johnny Fontaine. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, I didn't realize he was such like a big character in the book. Yeah, this was the second time I read The Godfather, the book, and I was even surprised. I did not recall how much of this story revolved around the actual godson. Yeah, because, like, the Godfather, in The Godfather, the film, Johnny Fontaine's arc is just used to show how much power that Vito has and how he gets things done. So it's funny that, like, I, I would never have guessed that he was, like, actually an important character in the books. It's weird, like, I guess because it's the stuff in the book that's not in the movie, it doesn't feel important to the main plot, (laughs) the gangster stuff, but I guess it's more of sort of like contrast, it's like, these are the people that work for the Don without even really realizing it, like, he's out there having this whole career that he owes to the Don, and the Don is making money off of that, you know, and that's just one of his enterprises, and it's like, this person's life is just in the pocket of Vito Corleone, and it's just the way it is, but there's way more interesting stuff in Godfather, the novel, that, (laughs) that I'll get to in a few minutes, though. Anything else you want to talk about the movie or the franchise before I start the dreaded book club? (laughs) It's not, actually. It's actually become quite a hit. I don't know how you felt about it. The Rocky session was a little rocky. It got a little long. (laughs) You know, the rest of my guests has actually kind of enjoyed the book club. No, I mean, like, I think it's, like, everything I kind of wanted to mention about this film. I just think people just need to give it another chance. It's not perfect, but don't compare it to The Godfather. Just watch it as a film and see what you think. But it's, again, it's not, it doesn't belong in, like, the crap that a lot of, like, third films are. It's still, like, a, a good film, even on its own. Even as a standalone, I'll argue, like, yeah, you need a lot of the background stuff, but it's not crazy to just jump into Godfather 3 and, like, follow the story along. Yeah, I don't recommend watching this one first. However... No, 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 of course not. However, I do want to say, after you watch the first two, try to realize that this is its own thing. 
give it a shot. Just take it for what it is. Try not to hold it to the standards of what's come before. It definitely pulls off part three better than lots of stuff. I think this is one of my favorites so far this season, to be quite honest with you. This is one that I like more than I thought I would. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I definitely agree with all that. But let's get into some books then. Book Club. Okay, so for this month, for Book Club, I did what I should have probably done back in Jaws. So for Jaws 3D, I read the Jaws 4 novelization instead of going back to read the original source material Jaws. So for this one, I went back and I reread the original Godfather by Mario Puzo. Then I was looking around the internet and I was like, oh, look at all these Godfather books. They're like sequels and spinoffs. And I was like, oh man, look at all the books I got to read. But then I looked a little closer and I was like, oh, none of them are written by Mario Puzo. They all came out after Godfather 3. So there's probably no material relating to any of this that will be of interest to me. Then I looked around a little deeper and I was like, oh, look at this. Mario Puzo wrote a book called The Sicilian and Michael Corleone's in it. I was like, I never knew that. And so I picked up that book expecting to get like a lot of missing pieces of The Godfather. The book is a bit of a bait and switch. (laughs) How so? Come for the Michael Corleone, stay for something completely different for 90% of the book, and then at the end we'll get back to Michael Corleone. But it's a really good book. I really enjoyed The Sicilian. What is it about? They've woven Michael into actual Italian history. They've like placed him into world history. It takes place where he's about to come home from Sicily in the very first movie, and he's going to get on the boat home in about like a week. They tell Michael, your dad has something he wants you to do. We need you to escort renowned bandit Salvatore Giuliano back to America. And he's like, who's Salvatore Giuliano? And so the rest of the book is about real life bandit Robin Hood, Billy the Kid of Sicily, Tori Giuliano. He was this kid from Sicily. One day, him and his friend, they were smuggling a wheel of cheese from one town to another. And (laughs) they got stopped by the police in the mountains. There was an altercation, and he shot one of them and killed them. And at that point, he decided he's going to be a bandit, and he is going to be for the people, and he's going to rob from the rich and give to the poor, and he will always fight for them. And this book is like his rise to infamy. And they've taken the Michael Corleone character, and it's like, okay, you're going to meet this guy at one point, and you're going to try and bring him back to America. His parents know your father. You're going to help him. And the whole book is like, you get to know this character right before Michael gets to meet him. There's no passages per se that really shed any light on the Michael Corleone character, which is what I was hoping for, which is what I read it for. But I kept reading it for the story of Tori. You know, I even looked him up. He's on, he's got a Wikipedia page. Notorious Sicilian bandit, dead at 27, lived a hell of a life. I recommend The Sicilian. I'm going to read two or three quick little passages from it just to give you a quick idea of what it's like. Yeah, I would never have guessed that that was the plot of that book. I've heard of it before, but I really thought it was more like a Godfather book. I know it's in the universe, but like... Yeah, I was expecting it to be Michael Corleone going on a secret mission. And it kind of is, but only for about three chapters. And the book is 408 pages. It was a pretty big one. So, okay, page 19. Okay, so this is a bit of Michael Corleone. He is meeting with the Don, Don Croce. They're laying out the plans of how this is all going to go down, how they're going to extract Tori from Sicily and get him back to America. Michael is meeting all of these Sicilians for the first time, like all the people who are surrounded themselves with Giuliano and everybody. Okay, so this is Michael, what he thinks about the Sicilians at this point. Michael thought, What the hell was this man saying? Why couldn't he get a straight answer from any of them? Because this was Sicily, he thought. Sicilians had a horror of truth. 
Tyrants and inquisitors have tortured them for the truth over thousands of years. The government in Rome, with its legal forms, demanded the truth. The priests in the confessional box commanded the truth under pain of everlasting hell. But truth was a source of power, a level of control. Why should anyone give it away? I thought that was an interesting sort of insight into the mind of the Sicilian a little bit there. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So are there like a lot of the similar themes in the Sicilian to the Godfather trilogy? Yeah, all the themes relate. Like, I feel like if you read this, you would understand Don Corleone's motivation a little more just from his mm, heritage. That's cool. Like, they talk of this this whole book kind of takes place the town over from Corleone. And Corleone, oh. I, I have a description of it in here. The book is also littered with sort of like definitions to a degree. So there's an interesting definition of mafia and omerta here, which I wanted to read out. On page 106, it says. Mafia in Arabic means a place of sanctuary, and the word took its place in the Sicilian language when the Sacrosans ruled the country in the 10th century. Throughout history, the people of Sicily were oppressed mercilessly by the Romans, the Papacy, the Normans, the French, the Germans, and the Spanish. Their governments enslaved the poor working class, exploiting their labor, raping their women, murdering their leaders. Even the rich did not escape. The Spanish Inquisition of the Holy Catholic Church stripped them of their wealth for being heretics, and so the Mafia sprang up as a secret society of avengers when the royal courts refused to take action against a norman noble who raped a farmer's wife a band of peasants assassinated him when a police chief tortured some petty thief with the dreaded cassetta the police chief was killed gradually the strongest will of the peasants and the poor formed themselves into an organized society which had the support of the people and in effect became a second and more powerful government when there was a wrong to be redressed no one ever went to the official police they went to the leader of the local mafia who mediated the problem Hmm, that's cool. A little history of, of the mafia in Sicily there. Yeah, yeah. Again, I'm surprised that the novel kind of goes into the bandit character, but you get it. And it's something that's hinted in the movies, like the almost lawlessness of Sicilian culture, at least, again, depicted in this universe. This book is about painting one of them as a hero, but they are not addressed in a good light whatsoever. You know? <laughs> like, here, here's a passage that I about the omerta so page 107 the greatest crime a sicilian could commit was to give any information of any kind to the authorities about anything done by the mafia they kept silent and this silent came to be called omerta over the centuries the practice enlarged to never giving the police information about a crime committed even against oneself all communications broke down between the police and the law enforcement agencies of reigning governments so that even a small child was taught not to give a stranger the simplest directions to a village or a person's home so like it's this behavior ingrained in them from childhood of distrusting authority and taking care of your community and i feel like that is what don corleone is like all about <laughs> yeah for sure you even see that in the flashbacks of godfather too like i always remember that scene with the lady who like gets kicked out of her apartment because she has like a puppy yes and he goes to talk to the landlord that's a perfect scene to me because it's not ruthless at all but he's still like using his muscle so i mean that fits in perfectly with that world that's that's like very like robin hood and don Corleone and michael to an extent but i think a little bit less because he's like obviously less true sicilian but don Corleone for sure does not see himself as like a ruthless killer he sees himself as almost like a robin hood there's a justice element to it you know what i'm saying Absolutely. And I, and I feel like that is in the Sicilian to a T. It's all about justice. And if I have to murder one of my best friends in the town square to make my point, I mean, that's just the price of it. <laughs> 
There's only one more small passage I wanted to read from this because it's a, it, it's about the town of Corleone. It's one of the only times it's really mentioned at length, and it's not even that long. It's just a small little paragraph on page 215. Even in Sicily, a land where men killed each other with the same ferocious enthusiasm with which the Spaniards slaughtered bulls, the murderous madness of the citizens of Corleone inspired a universal dread. Rival families exterminated each other in a quarrel over a single olive tree. Neighbors might kill each other over the amount of water one took for a communal stream. A man could die from love, that is, if he looked too disrespectfully at a wife or daughter. Even the cool-headed friends of the friends succumbed to this madness and their different branches warned to death in Corleone until Don Croce brought them to peace. Wow. <laughs> that is the namesake of the Godfather himself. You know, that is the town that Vito grew up in and was smuggled out of because people were coming to kill him when he was like a six-year-old boy. Yeah, I mean, that right there tells you. I mean, this is something that's so old and ingrained in him that it's, it wasn't not a weird transition to continue this in America. That's what's kind of missing from Michael. That's what kind of makes him like more sociopathic. He doesn't seem to have that code, that old, like, ancient code in him. He speaks like he does, but he almost, like, uses it more to his advantage. Like, I could never, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm, like, reading too into this, but could you ever imagine, like, Marlon Brando or, like, Robert De Niro, either versions of those, like, Don Colleones hitting the wife? No. Like, I could not picture that. Like, I can't picture them being, like, unhinged, like, Michael was unhinged with Kay. And in fact, there's a lot in The Godfather, the novel, about Connie being beaten by her husband, and that's what really sets Sonny off a lot. And, I mean, Don Corleone mentions that, like, oh, there's nothing I can do about it because that's their husband and wife. They have to do it, take care of it themselves, but he is not pleased that his daughter is getting beaten by her husband. Yeah, yeah, and it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like that's in his nature, but it's certainly, like, in Michael's. You know, Michael, like... He just doesn't have the same code there. I and mean, he's, he's arguably more successful than his father, but... Yeah, and I think it's because he's a bit more ruthless. I think he's colder, yeah. you know? He's got charisma. It's a different type. He just inspires fear instead of warmth, you know? Like, I feel like you... <laughs> you see Don Corleone, you see Vito Corleone, and he's like a big teddy bear, and, you know, we, you want to embrace him. But you see Michael, and he looks like the devil. Yeah, no, you're right. It's true. That was, I mean, that was some cool insight and passages it, it, it is weird i think i mentioned i mentioned earlier in this podcast there's that book and i looked it up it's called the godfather's revenge and it was written after and that kind of like recons a little bit with Ottobello. a lot of it's about Ottobello apparently so and, and again he's a character inventor for godfather 3 so but like i now i'm reading too that like paramount pictures basically put out a notice like if you're a fan of the films do not read this book because it ruins the films apparently I think it's along the lines of the author, who's obviously not Mario Puzo, took a lot of the inspiration from that potential Godfather 4 screenplay. So if they ever decide to do it, I'm sure there's, like, some spoilers in there, potentially. I hear you. I will stay away. From the Godfather's Revenge. I've kind of had my fill of the Godfather at this point, to be honest, with the two books and watching the movie so much. But it's good. We got to conclude the series. But I found out after reading The Sicilian is they actually made a movie out of it in 1987. Oh, really? 
I assume it doesn't have Michael. No, no, I don't think it has Michael. Anyway, the the only reason I bring it up is because there was a film adaptation of The Sicilian, and The Sicilian, Turi Giuliano, would you suspect the Highlander himself, Christopher Lambert? What? No. (laughs) Apparently this thing was like a doomed production from the beginning. I had not heard of it until now. Why would he, why would they pick him? Why don't they pick a Sicilian to be the Sicilian? I have no idea, but... This is the director of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, a great movie with Clint Eastwood. The Deer Hunter. Michael Cimino, yeah, Deer Hunter. That's what I know him from. There's a lot on the Wikipedia page about this one where I was like, okay, I'm not going to watch this movie for the show. Like, I'll just let this pass. Maybe someday <laughs> I'll watch it. But the book, I just don't, I just, the book was such an unexpected pleasure. Like, I was like, wow, I really like this book. Glad I'm reading it and not just reading it for the show or anything. I, I intentionally didn't mention any of the stuff with Turi. I want you to, you know, if you feel like reading and finding out about him, you can do that. It, I recommend it. So the other book I read for book club, I reread The Godfather. I read it a couple years ago. I read it like 10 years ago, maybe. Have you ever read The Godfather by any chance? I have not. It's on my bucket list. You wouldn't think for 450 pages, just about... Puzo reads really quick. Like I said, he kind of reminds me of Stephen King. Maybe he's a bit repetitive. Like, he repeats names a lot. A lot. Like, he he's repeats names a lot. But I like his style. I might go check out The Last Dawn. I know he wrote that book. That has nothing to do with The Godfather. So The Last Dawn was actually a miniseries, and Danny Aiello oh, is The Last Dawn. Cool. I like Danny Aiello. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let me just talk a little bit about The Godfather, the novel. I mentioned earlier that this is basically the source material for, well, the entire first movie is in here. What's also in here is half of The Godfather Part Two. It's only like part of one of the books, but it's like young Vito being smuggled out of Italy and growing up in New York and becoming the Godfather there. And then when he steals the rug with Clemenza, like all that kind of stuff is in here too. What isn't in here is any of the other stuff from part two with uh, Cuba or Florida or any of that. The reason I wanted to reread this is because another major part of this book that I forgot about, not, not just the Johnny Fontaine stuff, but Lucy Mancini is a major character in this book. Oh, that's interesting. And Lucy Mancini is Vincent Mancini's mother. Lucy and Sonny had him out of wedlock. Oh. And this was before, allegedly before Sonny is murdered in the toll booth. So let me get this straight. Yes. In the book, Vincent is born before Sonny's killed? Okay, so here's the thing. I'm, I'm trying to track when Vincent was born. That's like what I'm trying to do here with the book. So interestingly enough, on page 16, Lucy and Mike are introduced on the same page, which I thought was kind of interesting. I was like, whoa, are they like similar sized characters? They couldn't possibly be. And lo and behold, she like pretty much is, you know, has like equal story time in this book or is it as significant? Really? In a way, she's in a lot of this book. You see her in the movie, too. Like, her and Sonny fool around at the wedding. It's rumored that Sonny is extremely well-endowed. That's, like, a major plot point in the book. (laughs) Okay. Because, like, apparently, like, not even his wife can satisfy him. And that's, like, a plot point in Magic Mike XXL, where one of the strippers, played by Joe Mangiello, his cock's too big and he can't find what he calls the glass slipper. (laughs) But he eventually does. So Lucy is Sonny's glass slipper, basically. They fool around a lot in the book. 
So I'm like, okay, is he conceived at the wedding? No. Then again, on page 27, there's like graphic depiction of them having sex. And I was like, okay. I was like, okay, is he conceived here? And it's like, no. I was like, what is going on? Like, when <laughs> is Vincent conceived? I mean, do you even want to hear some of this? It's kind of like funny that even Mario Puzo would write something like this. You teased it. You teased it. Okay. And we're here. This is what book love's about. <laughs> I'll just give you a little taste at page 27. Lucy Mancini lifted her pink gown off the floor and ran up the stairs. Sonny Corleone's heavy cupid face, redly obscene with whiny lust, frightened her. But she had teased him for the past week to just end this. In her two college love affairs, she had felt nothing, and neither of them lasted more than a week. Quarreling, her second lover had mumbled something about her being too big down there. Lucy had understood, and for the rest of the school term, had refused to go out on any dates. During the summer preparing for the wedding of her best friend, Connie Corleone, Lucy heard the whispered stories about Sonny. One Sunday afternoon, in the Corleone kitchen, Sonny's wife, Sandra, gossiped freely. Sandra was a coarse, good-natured woman who had been born in Italy, but brought to America as a small child. She was strongly built with great breasts and had already borne three children in five years of marriage. Sandra and the other woman teased Connie about the terrors of the nuptial bed. My God, Sandra had giggled. When I saw that pole of Sonny's for the first time and realized he was oh going to stick it into me, I yelled bloody murder. After the first year, my insides felt as mushy as macaroni boiled for an hour. When I heard he was doing the job on other girls, I went to church and lit a candle. They had all laughed, but Lucy had felt her flesh twitching between her legs. Oh, no. Now she ran up the steps towards Sonny. A tremendous flash of desire went through her body. On the landing, Sonny grabbed her hand and pulled her down the hall into an empty bedroom. Her legs went weak as the door closed behind them. She felt Sonny's mouth on hers. His lips tasting of burnt tobacco, bitter. She opened her mouth. <laughs> At that moment, she felt his hand come up beneath her bridesmaid gown, heard the rustle of material giving way, felt his large, warm hand between her legs, rippling aside the satin panties to caress her vulva. She put her arms oh, around God. his neck and hung there as he opened his trousers. Then he placed both his hands beneath her bare buttocks and lifted her. She gave a little hop in the air so that both her legs were wrapped around his upper thighs. His tongue was in her mouth, and she sucked on it. He gave a savage oh, thrust that banged her head against the door. She felt something burning pass between her thighs. She let her right hand drop from his neck and reached down to guide him. Her hand closed around an enormous blood-gorged pole of muscle. It pulsated in her hand like an animal. <laughs> and almost weeping with grateful ecstasy, she pointed it into her own wet, turgid flesh. <sighs> the thrust of its entering, the unbelievable pleasure made her gasp, brought her legs up almost around his neck, and then, like a quiver, her body received the savage arrows of his lightning-like thrusts, innumerable torturing, arching her pelvis higher and higher until for the very first time in her life she reached a shattering climax, felt his hardness break, and then the crawly flood of semen over her thighs. Oh no. Oh my god. Slowly her legs relaxed from around his body, slid down until they reached the floor. They leaned against each other out of breath. So, Vincent not conceived in this moment. I guess not. Ugh. Mario Puzo, this is more like a like a drugstore paperback here. That, wow. Wow, that was... I thought for sure that's when Vincent was conceived. <laughs> um, so she ends up moving to Las Vegas and gets set up by the family because they knew about her infidelities with Sonny and they didn't want 
her to think that she was responsible for his murder in any way or anything like that, and she wasn't. But they sort of use her as a front, too. She ends up running some hotels for the Corleones while she's out in Vegas. Wow. Yeah, and so she's out there. She ends up working with Fredo a little bit. He's out there. She meets a very nice doctor. Okay. Dr. Jewel, this was just like so far i don't know what this was doing in this book at all but i have to tell you about her encounter with dr jules like this guy okay he is sort of <laughs> he was disgraced for doing abortions and couldn't find any work and the corleones helped him out and now he works at their hotels exclusively as the doctor for the hotels out there but he's like a really nice guy and he meets lucy and they start to fall in love, like genuinely fall in love. And you learn that she never even had an abortion or anything. She was never she was never pregnant ever at all. So let me just spoil that for you now. Like the timeline of the novel and the movies are are completely different. Okay, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, so in this book Vincent is never conceived. He's not born. So like maybe they retcon some of that with the later novels that aren't written by Puzo, but so far he is an invention of the films. Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't seem like Vincent was was like raised by like us like yeah that and like how he had like a, a very nice doctor stepfather. It doesn't it doesn't seem like his lifestyle, you know. No, in the movie it seems very much like Lucy raised him as a single mother in New York City with no money or very little help from the Corleone family, not that she was like set up for life. Yeah, you know, for sure because like he kind of like intrudes on that additional party he's like not on the list and i feel like he would have been on the list if she was that important of a character okay so i have one more little segment here and then you're free to go you know like i said i mostly reread this just to track lucy's story once i found out that she was like way more in this book i was like oh wow okay what happens to her and i couldn't believe that this is what happened but this comes up of all places in the novel of the godfather Chapter 22, if you're going to just like sort of go to Barnes and Noble and you want to read a chapter to blow your mind, (laughs) just go and read chapter 22 of The Godfather one day. This is between Lucy and Dr. Jules, who they're falling in love, and (laughs) Lucy is very self-conscious about herself down there because she feels like Sonny was the only man to wear her glass slipper oh boy okay all right so this is after their first encounter in bed together lucy and jules page 308 when he rolled off her body lucy huddled into one corner of the bed and began to cry she felt so ashamed and then she was shockingly surprised to hear jules laugh softly and say you poor benighted italian girl So that's why you kept refusing me all these months. You dope. He said, you dope, with such friendly affection that she turned toward him and he took her naked body against his, saying, you are medieval. You are positively medieval. But the voice was soothingly comforting as she continued to weep. Jules lit a cigarette and put it in his mouth so that she choked on the smoke and had to stop crying. Now listen to me, he said. If you had had a decent modern raising with a family culture that was part of the 20th century, your problem would have been solved years ago. Now let me tell you what your problem is. It's not the equivalent of being ugly or having bad skin and squinty eyes that facial surgery really doesn't solve. 
Your problem is like having a wart or a mole on your chin or an improperly formed ear. Stop thinking of it in sexual terms. Stop thinking in your head that you have a big box no man can love because it won't oh give his God. penis the necessary friction. What you have is a pelvic malformation and what we surgeons call a weakening of the pelvic floor. It usually comes after childbearing, but it can be simply bad bone structure. It's a common condition and many women live a life of misery because of it when a simple operation could fix them up. Some women even commit suicide because of it. But I never figured oh you for that condition because you have such a beautiful body. I thought it was psychological. Since I know your story, you told it to me often enough, you and Sonny. But let me give you a thorough physical examination and I can tell you just exactly how much work will have to be done. Now go in and take a shower. Oh my god. Do you want to hear the exam? Oh, sure. We're in the middle of this anyway, right? Yeah, you've, you've built to it, so. This is the most important thread of the entire Godfather saga. You never even knew existed. <laughs> he was all business now, examining her, sticking his fingers inside her and moving them around. She was beginning to feel humiliated when he kissed her on the navel and said, almost absentmindedly, first time I've enjoyed my work. Then he flipped her over and thrust a finger in her rectum, feeling around. Oh. But his other hand was stroking her neck, affectionately. <laughs> When he was finished, he turned her right side up again, kissed her tenderly on the mouth, and said, Baby, I'm going to build you a whole new thing down there. Oh, my God. And then I'll try it out personally. Oh, what? It, it will be a medical first. I'll be able to write a paper on it for the official journals. What is this? There is, like, six more pages. It goes through the whole surgery. It's insane, dude. But why? Why? I don't understand. I'm going to read a little bit. I can't even pronounce some of these words because it's like a medical journal, but it's like he was working on the diaphragm sling. The T-forceps held the vaginal flap and exposing the ani muscle and the facile, which formed its sheath. I'm like, what is going on here? What does this have to do with the Godfather? Oh, my God. Why is this? I don't... Why would, like, an author who's writing, like, a mafia story go off on this tangent? It is insane i mean i'm reading this with like my mouth wide open i'm like i should have remembered this from the first time i read it i don't even know what to say i don't even know what to say that's what i love about book club to be quite honest with you because so far <laughs> i've pretty much gotten that reaction out of every book i've read at some point like on every episode there's something in each book that my guests just can't reply to like they're just their mind breaks or something like that it's awesome it's so worth putting the time in to read these books <laughs> just for these small little snippets I mean, why? I can't imagine what the audience is thinking right now. The Godfather's going to sell out. Everybody who listens to this, go buy The Godfather. Yeah, buy the book if, if that's what you want. If, if this is turning you off a little bit, don't let this ruin The Godfather 3 for you. They should do like a, uh, was it like Anthony Burgess where they like took out the last chapter of Clockwork Orange? They should like take out the 22nd chapter of The Godfather from now on when they repress this thing. <laughs> it's really fascinating that she's such a main character in the books. Yeah, and she comes back again when Michael goes to Vegas at the end to talk to like Mo Green and everything. Like she's there. She welcomes Michael. Michael's like, How have you been? and all this stuff. She's actually there to keep an eye on Fredo. Like Fredo's out there fucking up a little bit and like not pulling his weight and she's sort of spying on him. She's a very big part. I just don't understand why that's her side story. Was that a new technique? Like, I didn't research that medical technique, but I can't imagine it was, like, in vogue at the time, so he put it in his book. If anything, it, maybe this is, like, wrong of me to say, but, like, a man shouldn't be writing about oh, that. Oh, absolutely. You know? 
that is not something a man should be writing about. Just reading it, it sounded like he was getting it wrong, too. (laughs) I don't know. You know, you don't know. Like, we don't know. And I doubt he freaking knows. You know, like, it doesn't seem... Definitely perception... I mean, I don't want to really deep dive into this, but, like, definitely perception-wise, like, I don't know if she would really be feeling that, you know? Like, oh, I can't satisfy a man. Oh, a simple procedure will solve this. Like, and he kind of, like, Frankensteins her to make her fit him, this weird doctor guy. And convinces her her problem is physical. I mean, look, you know, <laughs> you know, it's civil duty as a podcaster on my own show to perform this segment to its fullest capacity. So I had to read that. I had to inform the public. I couldn't keep that to myself. You know, I'd have gone crazy. It's good to know that this is what's on Mario Puzo's mind at the time. I guarantee there's not another cageclub.me network podcast talking about that. All right, Brian, I think we're going to wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Please, remind us, where can we find you at this point in time? So definitely tune in to the complete catalog and anthology at this point. P.S. I Love Hoffman has concluded, but that doesn't mean you should, if you haven't heard it before, listen to all the episodes. We get better. Michael Manzi, you're on a bunch of them. We had a blast doing it. I say we, as in my co-host Kyle Reinfried. That's P.S. I Love Hoffman, which is on Cage Club Network. And my current show is High School Slumber Party, which, Michael Manzi, you're also on some episodes of that. And it's super fun. We talk about high school films and kind of the high school experience for people. It's just supposed to be a really fun time. I'm having a lot of fun doing it and recording the episodes. And definitely tune into that. You'll have a blast. I'm assuming you went to high school if you didn't. Even if you got your GED, you should still tune in. Yes, for sure. You'll find something to relate to. I love that title. Yeah, I said, why not? (laughs) I had a great time on that show. One of my favorite parts was just talking about high school, not even talking about the movie. The movie was a lot of fun, but I like that angle of it too, just how we relate it all back to high school. Yeah, I look forward to listening to all the other episodes of that show, and I can't wait to come back on. Yeah, that's been like, some of the most fun has been talking to people about their high school experience and just like fun stories from high school and how they relate to the film, and sometimes it's just random ones. So it's been a blast. Definitely tune into that. Thank you very much again for being a friend of the friends and coming on the show to talk Godfather Part 3. Thank you. Always a pleasure. One of my favorite shows and can't wait to be back on, I'm sure, at one point. Absolutely. For all things Third Time's a Charm, for every show on our Cage Club Podcast Network, you can go to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. That is our website where you could find all the pages to all the shows, all the links to Twitter. We have the host bios up. Those are really fun. Go check those out. I didn't write mine, but it's approved by me. I like it a lot. (laughs) Who wrote yours? The Joe 1 and 2, collectively. I believe they combined to write that for me. So thanks, guys, if you're listening. Go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to Third Time's a Charm have a facebook page you go check that out that's third times a charm page at facebook that's it thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time third times a charm three that's a magic number three it is it's the magic number three they stub at me and that's a magic number what does it all mean next on third times a charm we don't need a lover here